The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, The Tactical Take, where we discuss our thoughts on the markets, highlighting the opportunities and risks that we see in the current environment, and how we're positioned in the tactical sleeves of the Natixis models to reflect this backdrop. My name is Jack Janisiewicz, Portfolio Manager and Lead Portfolio Strategist with Natixis Investment Manager Solutions, and I lead the Natixis Investment Manager Solutions Investment Committee. There's been some tough sledding for the markets the past few months, and seeing that the Treasury market has taken the equity market hostage, let's spend a few minutes here talking about the Treasury market. There are a few narratives out there that we think are a bit misguided regarding the Treasury market. One of the key worries that we keep hearing from investors is who's going to buy all of this supply that's required to finance the yawning fiscal deficit? The other is so-and-so is selling their Treasury holdings and that's pressuring yields higher. So let's tackle these concerns. The first one, is China really selling their U.S. Treasury holdings? Easy narrative to spin. And without really understanding the data that some are using to make this case, it's pretty easy to draw the wrong conclusion from a cursory overview. The data that we are following comes from the U.S. Federal Reserve's Z1 release, also known as the Flow of Funds Report. It comes out quarterly, so the data is currently through the end of the second quarter. When looking at the data, you'll see a slow drop-off in the holdings of U.S. Treasuries by China, implying a reduction or net selling. However, one needs to reconcile any holdings data with face value versus market value. Looking at market value will reflect the fact that the Bloomberg U.S. Treasury Index is down almost 18% over the last three years. If you were looking at a market value-driven chart of China's Treasury holdings, it's been fairly constant since 2013 and then drops by roughly 18% over the last three years. That's not selling, that's just marking the market losses, which reduces the value of your holdings. Line down and to the right. Second, if you only look at China's treasury holdings, you're not getting the whole story. You're missing their active management. And what do I mean? There are two sides to every trade. China has been selling treasuries and buying agency paper for years now. According to Fed staffers who make their own adjustments to the data, China bought roughly $104 billion of agency paper over the course of 2022 to June of 2023 and sold about $40 billion of treasuries against it. So, not only modest net selling of treasuries recently, but rather net buyers of U.S. government-backed paper in aggregate. So, if you're not careful, you can draw the wrong conclusions without fully appreciating all that's going on underneath the surface. Selling treasuries? Yes, but abandoning high-quality U.S. government-backed paper? Nope. Just really a relative value trade. The Treasury International Capital System, also known as the TIC data, is another provider of holdings as well. TIC data is a product of the U.S. Department of the Treasury, publishing this data on a monthly basis. The methodology for assigning ownership of treasuries is based on the custodian's location. So if you are a New York-based hedge fund, for example, with a custody account located in the Cayman Islands for tax purposes, your holdings will show up as the Cayman Islands. In China's case, they custody a bunch of their holdings in Belgium with Euroclear. So one needs to include Belgium, for example, in the China data. And China's shadow holdings are likely held outside of China as well. More assets hiding elsewhere under the, another country's name. And what if some of that management is outsourced to a third party? Those holdings will show up, not under China. The forensics behind tracking international holdings can be tricky. China is likely not a net purchaser of treasuries these days. 
Rather, simply rolling some of those maturities into new purchases and likely repatriating some of those maturities as well. So, who is buying treasuries these days then? If we turn to the Fed's flow of funds report, we see a couple of trends emerging recently. The Fed is not buying treasuries anymore. Quantitative easing has been replaced with quantitative tapering. We kind of knew that though. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Asset managers have not been buying either. Rather, households have been ramping up their buying. And steady accumulation is coming also from pension and insurance companies, state and local governments, and foreigners too. Yes, foreigners too. Remember all the talk about hedging costs making the foreign buying of hedged treasuries unattractive? That really never played out. Looks like foreigners maybe didn't want to be holding hedge treasuries at this point and were simply willing to own yield outright while assuming foreign currency risk at the same time. What's more interesting to us is a shift in the buyer base when we break these buyers into two broad categories. We split the buyers into two buckets, price sensitive and price insensitive. Price insensitive buyers reflect those buyers who really don't care about whether treasuries are expensive or cheap relative to other asset classes. These buyers need to own treasuries for asset and liability matching purposes, investors like pension funds or insurance companies. Some of these buyers may also be conducting monetary policy operations like central banks and the Fed. Conversely, price sensitive buyers care about P&L. Entry and exit points matter to them, just as relative valuations matter to them. Asset managers, households, and mutual funds are price-sensitive buyers, for example. And what have we been seeing recently? Demand in the treasury market has shifted from price-insensitive buyers to price-sensitive ones. And why is this a big deal? We've noted a buyer strike that was likely a result of increased volatility. If you are a price-insensitive buyer, that volatility doesn't matter. If you are a price-sensitive one, then it matters. Volatility reflects uncertainty, and if you are managing risk that drives P&L, volatility is your enemy, as the number of potential outcomes suddenly becomes much greater. So as treasury volatility spikes, uncertainty increases, and price-sensitive buyers step to the sidelines. A buyer strike. And with price-sensitive buyers now being the marginal bid in the market, is it any wonder why a buyer strike might have a bigger impact on treasury yields than we normally expect? However, we do find a relationship that persists with price-sensitive buyers. As yields move higher, more and more price-sensitive buyers tend to wade into the market. And as they move lower, more sellers tend to come in. Higher yields attract buyers as price-sensitive players find value in those higher yields and lower prices. To think yields will be a straight line up and to the right into perpetuity is a fool's errand. Like we've been saying, once volatility settles down, those price-sensitive buyers will be back at it doing what they've been doing, buying. Yields at 5% are pretty juicy to them. We've also heard a lot about supply concerns regarding treasury issuance. To fund that huge fiscal deficit, a trillion dollars in treasury supply must be absorbed by the markets. If you look at what has been issued thus far, it's been mostly T-bills over the last few months, not coupons. Treasury has mentioned a cap of 25% for the ratio of T-bills to total debt outstanding, but have since stated that they're willing to go above and beyond that guidance. And this makes sense for a few reasons. The finance world operates in a collateral-based system today. You want a loan? Give me some T-bills as collateral and I'll extend you credit. Additionally, if Treasury expects rates to come down in the future, why issue long-dated coupons today? Issue short-dated bonds, keep rolling them until rates fall, and then issue longer maturity paper and lock in that lower rate. It serves multiple purposes to issue short-term debt right now, 
But what's more interesting, who has been the marginal buyer? And more likely than not, it's been money market funds. You can see that the size of the drop in the reverse repo facility roughly matches the size of the T-bill issuance thus far. Recall that during COVID, with all of the transfer payments that went out, money was pouring into deposits at banks. Banks didn't want the money because it wasn't very profitable for them to take on deposits while no one was borrowing. These deposits were consuming balance sheet capital, capital that could have been allocated to more profitable investments. As a result, banks began to turn away deposits, which needed to find another home. Along came money market funds, who proved to be the big beneficiary of these assets. Inflows came rushing in, and with that, money funds plowed those proceeds into T-bills, pushing those yields to 0% and even negative. Money funds can't break the buck or lose money, so investing in a negative yielding asset doesn't help. The Fed took note of this dislocation in the system and attempted to alleviate the pressure by opening up what's called the reverse repo facility. Send your money to the Fed and they'll pay you Fed funds plus a spread. Bingo. Money funds were now in luck, earning a yield that was not 0.00%. This facility skyrocketed to roughly $2.5 trillion. Money just parked at the Fed doing absolutely nothing except earning that yield. Remember, the Fed doesn't lend those balances out. The trick to get that money to exit this facility and re-enter the system? Offer up a compelling alternative, preferably in the liquid treasury market. Enter T-bills, which had seen a sharp backup in rates given the relentless Fed hikes. And T-bills were now offering up a slight yield pickup to what the reverse repo facility was offering. Money slowly started to exit reverse repo, and this has since accelerated. And ironically, the acceleration is all happening at a time when T-bill issuance is on the rise. Issue more supply, yields back up. That yield looks attractive versus reverse repo. Swap your money in reverse repo for T-bills, done. So why is this important? The money in reverse repo isn't doing anything. It's literally just sitting there. The Fed doesn't use it and it doesn't get recirculated back into the system. So taking idle cash and using that to soak up T-bill issuance is perfect. A marginal buyer now absorbing supply and absorbing the supply with funds that weren't doing anything, so the impact on liquidity is really nothing. Perfect. So let's review. China is not selling treasuries and pushing the market higher in terms of yield. Supply isn't wrecking the market either. The vast majority of recent issuance has been in T-bills, which appears to be having been largely funded from reverse repo. The fear of incremental supply? Sure, that may be spooking yields higher. But the price-sensitive buyers have historically shown up when yields are rising. Can you blame those price-sensitive buyers for being unwilling to stick their neck out in front of the duration buzzsaw with rates ripping 10 basis points or more each day? Let volatility chill out and those price-sensitive buyers will be back doing their thing. It's really all about inflation and growth expectations. And that's what drives Treasury yields. Let's shift gears and talk about the October FOMC meeting, which was fairly uneventful for all intents and purposes. Yes, the whole world knew the decision was going to be a pause, and that's exactly what we got, and very little more. Quantitative tapering continues unchanged, with no thought of discussion of moderating the pace, and even the statement had very minimal changes. For the most part, Powell's presser was fairly boring as well, particularly towards the end. But there were several things worth highlighting that we found somewhat interesting. When asked about the December meeting, Powell had the chance to lean into the September summary of economic projections and point to its forecast for one more hike. Instead, he chose to eviscerate the dots, stating that 
the efficacy of the dot plot decays over the three-month period between the quarterly meetings. While this shouldn't surprise anyone who takes the dot plot for what they really are, the messaging tool and no more, Powell's distancing from those September projections spoke volumes. He wouldn't directly say it, but a December hike is effectively off the table. There clearly isn't an issue to hike rates further, and the hawkish bias continues to erode. To that point, Powell directly noted that the balance of risks is coming into equilibrium. In other words, the risk of doing too much and destroying the progress they've made on the labor side of the mandate and the risk of not doing enough to get inflation back down are becoming balanced. And with that balance of risks shifting, the hawkish bias continues to fade. And finally, perhaps the most important portion of the Powell presser was a brief exchange clarifying their desire to see slower growth. There remains a lot of fear about the Fed not being convinced that inflation is durably moving back to target if growth remains strong. But Powell made clear that this is not the case. They believe they will need a period of below potential growth. But potential growth is not the same as trend growth. Let's say that again. Potential growth is not the same as trend growth. Most people assume the Fed wants to see below trend growth or something in the range of sub-2% real GDP growth. But Powell explicitly stated what should be obvious now. The potential growth rate of the economy is now temporarily higher as the economy experiences catch-up growth from improving supply chains, expanding labor supply, and increasing productivity. Robust above-trend growth can still be consistent with 2% inflation as long as it remains below the temporarily elevated potential growth rate of the economy. Powell is telling you strong growth does not equate to inflation and doesn't inherently mean more hikes. And that means that hikes in 2023 are done and the bar for further hikes is still quite high. There is something else afoot that's worth highlighting that may be going underappreciated by many. But productivity might actually be on the rise. And think of productivity as doing more with less. We produce more goods and services with fewer workers and maybe even fewer hours worked. This is important because one of the keys to stronger growth resides in increased productivity. We already knew third quarter productivity was tracking for a strong quarter given the modest pace of aggregate hours worked during a quarter that saw real GDP print nearly 5%. But the actual print surprised even elevated expectations rising 4.7% quarter-on-quarter versus consensus of 4.3%, and driving unit labor costs down 0.8% over the quarter versus expectations for a 0.3% advance. That brings year-on-year productivity to 2.2%, above the highest levels we saw throughout the 2010s with the exception of the quarters just preceding the pandemic. More output with less hours and falling labor costs. And that sounds like a pretty good backdrop to me. As we mentioned earlier, rising productivity is the key to robust but disinflationary real growth. Granted, productivity is notoriously difficult to measure and will undoubtedly be revised several times, but it is looking increasingly likely that we could see durable productivity gains in the quarters ahead, gains that raise potential growth and mute the inflationary effects of that growth. We saw plenty of capital deepening during the pandemic era that could just now be yielding efficiency gains just as labor churn finally slows in tenured lengthens, driving further labor productivity gains as workers become more efficient in their roles. It is indeed still early, but there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic with respect to productivity. The rise in productivity allows the economy to absorb wage pressures without an increase in price inflation. And recall Powell's formula, 
wage growth equals inflation plus productivity. If productivity is on the rise and inflation is falling, wage growth may be able to run at a higher pace than we may appreciate. And this is exactly what we're witnessing today. So what did we do this month? Well, we added some high beta U.S. equity exposure in an attempt to play a short-term recovery in risk assets. Given that sentiment appears to have overshot to the bearish side and Treasury yields seem to have sold off beyond what we would consider fair value, we expect a near-term bounce in risk assets. Longer term, we still remain in the soft landing camp with an eye on the usual suspects, oil prices, the dollar, and bond yields. The Fed is on hold, the economy is slowly slowing, labor markets are rebalancing and normalizing, and the technical picture should begin to improve as we head into the final weeks of the year. To wrap up our podcast, The Tactical Take, this is Jack Janisiewicz. Hope you enjoyed the commentary and thanks for listening. Important information for listeners outside the United States. Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers SA, Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcasts disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult im.natixis.com slash intl slash podcasts and other media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis investment managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis investment managers entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Performance data discussed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Indexes are not investments, do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis, such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products, provided by Natixis Distribution. LLC, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, MA02199. Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution, LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Managers, LLC Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision. Member SIPC, POD 37, November, 2023, Add tracks 6084646, 1, 1, expiration date, November 30th, 2024.